Great. Well, I would like to start with a question, please. And it's an interactive question. So in a moment, if you're here in the hall, I mean, you could do this at home as well if you want to. I would like you to put your hand up if, if you come from a family that has never known any hurt, never known any broken relationships, never got anything wrong, never wished you could go back and do things a little bit differently, and that you believe will never do anything wrong, suffer hurt, or any kind of broken relationship ever again. Would you like to put your hands up now? Just in case you're wandering back at home and you can't see anybody, nobody's got their hands up. No family is ever perfect. Ever. And I can tell you from six or seven years now, full-time ministry, that is absolutely the case. And what we're going to see here, though, is the most important or the most significant family in the history of God's dealing with the world. The people of Israel, Abraham's descendants, Jacob, the father of the twelve, including Joseph, from whom comes eventually Jesus. That's the family that we're going to be looking at over the next ten Sundays. And that family would not be able to put their hand up at all. In fact, if I'd asked that question, they probably would have sat on their hands. This family is not at all perfect, and yet this is the family through whom God has promised to bless the entire world. So I've got some questions for you as well as we start this series together. Do you ever feel like the stories of the Old Testament seem very far removed from today? Do you ever feel like sometimes your life, especially perhaps your family, your relationships, are messy? Do you feel like sometimes that if God was going to use you for something, he either already would have, already has done, or that it's too late? Well, as you think about those questions, I want to answer them by showing you how important this story is, not just in the history of God's people, but for each of us today. It's relevant to us and to our lives. The Lord works through messy people living messy lives and messy families. And if you're trusting in Jesus, whoever you are, he can and he will use you for his purposes. But the very first thing I want to do is to recap slightly, because last year we looked at the story of Abraham and Sarah, and now we're coming back in again at the next generation down. Verse 19 tells us that this is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. But I want to rewind a little bit and think about why this family was chosen and what this family was chosen for. And the way I want to do that is with the image that you can see up on the screen, which just gives a framework for how we can understand the structure of Scripture. That it's about God's people in God's place under God's rule and therefore knowing God's blessing. So think right the way back to the Garden of Eden. God's people are Adam and Eve. They're in God's place, paradise. Initially, they're living under God's rule and they're knowing the wonderful blessing of walking with God in the garden. But then their hearts turn away. They decide, actually, they don't want to be God's people anymore. They don't want to live under God's rule. They think they can get a better blessing than the one that their God has offered them. And so they fall. And they're no longer in God's place. And they no longer know God's blessing in quite the same way. 
But the story of the Old Testament is God not giving up on his plan to have a people that can know him and enjoy him and be with him forever. And so the story of the Old Testament is the story of God working to restore those four things. God's people in God's place under God's rule and knowing God's blessing. It's the promise that is made through Abraham out to the world. And as you go through the rest of the Old Testament, as you move forward through the Old Testament, you see it gradually ebb and flow. They get a bit closer to fulfilling this wonderful promise. Perhaps the highest point of all is under King David's, where God's people have moved into the land. They're God's people again. They're living in the promised land. They have God's ruler, King David, ruling over them. And for a season, they know God's blessing. And yet again, the cycle repeats. Humans turn away from God. Sin enters into the picture and the whole thing crumbles. They get taken out of the land. They live under the rule of a foreign king and they no longer know the same blessing. What Jesus then comes into the story and says is this. Anyone now who trusts in him becomes the people of God. God's place is wherever his kingdom reaches, and that is wherever the gospel has gone and call people to him. God's rule now is through his word, but actually it's in our hearts. And his blessing is that we can know him for ourselves now and for eternity. You see how the story begins with God's people in God's place, under God's rule and knowing God's blessing. And it will end forever in eternity with God's people in God's place, under God's rule, knowing God's blessing forever. But in between, God has to work to bring those people back to that place. And the way that he's going to do it is through the family of Abraham. And so we rejoin that story at the point that we see the promise moving on a generation. We'll see how God keeps the promise through this family, even though it is going to get really messy. Things are going to go horribly wrong. And yet God remains faithful. And we can see that God will remain faithful to us, even in our messy lives. So God's promise continues, and we meet Abraham and Sarah's son Isaac, who's now 40, and we're told that he married Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, and sister of Laban, the Aramean, her uncle. So yeah, if you sort of start to unpick that, that's a pretty close marriage relationship. It's not the kind of thing that we're encouraged to do anymore. But that's not the biggest cultural gap that we're going to have to get over as we go through this story. Some of the things that happen are not things that we're instructed to do. And yet, it's the way that God was working at the time. And it's interesting as you start to read this story, we've gone straight out of the end of Abraham, and you get to Isaac, and yet the story very, very quickly moves to their children, Esau and Jacob. There's very, very little about Isaac before the children are born. Now, it's not that Isaac's unimportant. It's not that God doesn't care about these individuals that he's called and chosen to use. I think what's happening there is that the Bible is telling us that the important thing to realize is how God is going to work his purposes out through the generations. That the key thing is that as this family continues somehow to keep going against all the odds and all their own mistakes, really, 
that God is going to work his purposes out through the generations of this family. And so the story goes straight to this fascinating birth of the twins, Esau and Jacob. And the Lord says to Rebekah, who's pregnant, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. When the time came to give birth, there were twin boys. The first to come out was red and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel and so he was named Jacob. I love the fact that they named the first one after the colour he is when he comes out and he was born and he was red and hairy. As you probably know, we're about two weeks away from expecting our third child. I haven't yet suggested to Emily that we might like to name them after the colour that the baby is born. I'm not sure how well that would go down. But we see in this birth narrative hints of the challenges that this family is going to face. We're already getting clues that lots of the problems that have been there in previous generations are only going to get worse through the next. I remember when I said that God works through complicated families. Well, here's the first clue that that's going to happen. The word from the Lord that the older will serve the younger and that Jacob comes out grasping the heel of his older brother. But within that, we see that the Lord is still involved. The Lord spoke into that situation and told Rebecca that that was what was going to happen. It's a reminder to us that God is still going to keep his promises. That even though things seem to be splintering off and splitting off and fracturing and you're wondering, well, how could this be the family of the promise? There's a word there from the Lord which reminds us and told them that God is still in control. You see, the final thing I want to say this morning and the thing I think we get from this and the whole story of Isaac and Jacob and their families is that God remains faithful. As those two boys grow up, Esau and Jacob, those differences in personality hinted to in their birth become more pronounced. And the split between them increases and draws in their own parents. We're told in verse 28 that Isaac, who, who had a taste for wild game and a sort of adventurous life, he loved Esau, who I sort of picture as a kind of Bear Grylls type character. Although I think probably Bear Grylls is a little bit more faithful. The outdoor man, the adventurer, the, the wild person who knows how to live for weeks on end out without provisions, a bit impetuous, impulsive, driven. And Isaac, his father, loves that about Esau, and that's going to come back to cause problems later on. But Rebecca loved Jacob, the quieter twin, the calmer, more planning brother, the one who will scheme and plot his way through life. We see already, just there in verse 28, the kind of problems that this family is going to get into as Isaac loves Esau, but Rebecca loves Jacob. And I want to just pause it there for a second to make, I think, a really important point, which is going to remain important throughout the rest of this series, and in fact, whenever we read from the Bible, particularly biblical narrative, the parts of the Bible that are written to give us an account of what really happens. Because a lot of the time, the Bible narrates those events for us, it tells us and shows us what happens, but it doesn't provide a running commentary. It doesn't follow it up by saying, and that was really good. 
or, and that was really terrible. It does sometimes. But a lot of the time, it leaves us to work that out for ourselves. So here's a good example. Is it a good thing if parents have favourites amongst their children? You probably think it was if you knew that you were the favourite child growing up and you had siblings. Well, clearly not. Clearly that is not a good thing. But in the text, we're not actually given a sort of explicit instruction that that is a bad thing. Brackets, by the way, parents, please don't do this. It's not written in. But as you read through the story, you can work it out for yourself. You can see that God doesn't want them to have favourites and split the family in half because it causes all sorts of problems. But we have to do that work for ourselves. It means that we take it on board more. It's not simply written out for us to try and remember, but actually as we enter into the story, we see the problems that sin causes and it should work in our hearts to help us want to follow God's ways and not our own. So it's just an important side point that I want to make that often the Bible describes things that it neither explicitly condones or condemns. A lot of the time it's simply telling us the story of what happened. And the implications are there for us to work out later on. But here we have Esau and Jacob. And the favoritism is already the cause of a great split in the family. And we come to the day where Esau is out hunting in the fields and he comes back in and he's absolutely famished. And he thinks to himself, oh, I would give anything for a good meal. I've been there. As you can probably guess, I'm there pretty much every day. (laughs) And he comes back in and he thinks, I would give anything to have a lovely bowl of delicious hot stew. Jacob, on the other hand, is cool and calm and cunning. And so he says to Esau, tell you what, brother, friend, buddy, chum, I'll give you a bowl of stew. And the only thing, the only little thing I ask in exchange, and you are hungry, aren't you, brother? I mean, you look really hungry. I mean, it must have been a really tiring day today out there in the fields. Oh, you're wasting away. I'll give you a bowl of stew. And the only teeny-weeny little thing that I'm going to ask in exchange is that you sell me your birthright as the firstborn, the right to inherit the firstborn's portion. You... You give that to me, and I'll give you a lovely hot bowl of goat stew, or whatever it was. And Esau takes it. Esau does the deal. It's a terrible deal. It's the worst deal ever. To just get one bowl of hot food in exchange for his birthright as the oldest son. It's a terrible deal. And who comes out of that story particularly well? Which of those two is the the hero for us to emulate? Well, it's clearly not the guy that throws away his birthright for a hot meal. And I don't really think it's the guy who's cool and calm and cunning and stitching up his older brother and capitalising on his hunger. Neither of them comes out of it really well. And yet, as I said, the Bible gives us no commentary. It simply tells us what happened. Jacob takes advantage of his brother. And Esau rejects what it says, despises his inheritance for a meal. And you might think, well, okay. He had it coming. It's his own fault. 
He chose to make the deal, and if he wants to throw away his rights as the firstborn for the sake of hot stew, well, it will be on his own head. Pretty bad. But then you stop and think for a moment. And you realize that Esau and Jacob would have been told the stories of their father and their grandfather, Abraham. Of the promises that through their family, God would build a nation and bring blessing to the world. That's the inheritance that Esau is prepared to throw away for the sake of a meal. In the moment, the superficial, the the instant, the, the... The shallow satisfaction seems so much more appealing than the rich but long-term promises that God has made. And isn't that still often the case? For us, people who have so far rejected the offers that Jesus makes, it seems on the surface so much more appealing to just try and get the most that we can out of this world as if that's all there is, the instant the surface, the superficial, the the felt needs that we have. And to reject the idea that God might have a promise which actually transforms our eternity. One of the reasons why this story is still so relevant today is that the human heart really doesn't ever change. And we're so tempted to take the stew instead of the promise. And it's written for us to remind us that the riches that we have in God, our inheritance in Christ, is worth infinitely more than anything this world can offer. As we heard last week when Jesus said, what does it profit to gain the whole world but lose your soul? What does it gain to have a bowl of stew but lose your inheritance? What does it gain to have all the pleasures that this world can offer to lose your place with your creator God in eternity? And yet, yet, God remains faithful. Faithful to his promise. Faithful to this family. Faithful to us. When we mess it up, when we do chase after the things that take us away from God, when we do turn away and think, I know best, I know what I really need, it's not what God says, it's what I think I need. He remains faithful. He will always keep his promises. He will never let his people go. God keeps this promise to the family, to the nation that they become, and to all of us when we put our trust in Jesus. God keeps his word to and through people who fall short of his glory. Romans 3 says this, There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short. Like Esau, like Jacob, we all fall short. And yet, we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. There are times when we're all Esau. We don't really think about it, we just turn away and go our own way. There are times when we're all like Jacob and we really do think about it and we still make bad choices. There will be times as you look back in your own life and as we've been thinking about perhaps through the generations of your family when you could say, yeah, 
It's like us. And yet there it is in Romans chapter 3. All have sinned, but all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Once we put our trust in him, once we believe in him, we become part of his people and he will never let us go. He will never let us down. He will never break his word. He will always keep his promise. Some will continue to despise it, to reject it. For those to whom God gives faith, there is this wonderful promise of forgiveness and grace and redemption. And you know, the thing which really blows my mind, the thing which really shows you that this is the word of God and not just, not just a wise book or a, a, an ancient document of wisdom, it's, this is living and breathing and active. This is over the centuries having the power to work in our hearts. The thing that really shows you that, the thing that really draws you in is this. It's not just an example. They're not just a moral example of what not to do or even a picture of God's grace. That family that God promised to bless the world through is the family that we become part of in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. That same promise that God made to them is the same promise that we can become inheritors of ourselves. We can have a birthright to it because we share in Jesus, the firstborn of God. But Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now in Greek, there's two different words that can be translated as if. I might have said this before, but you might not have heard it. There's two words that in English we have one word for, if. In Greek, there's two and one of them is called an, an iffy if. So it's the kind of if like, well, if it's sunny later, I might go to the beach. Or um, if I run out of food tomorrow, I'm going to go to the supermarket. It's, it's dependent. It's an iffy if. But there's another kind of if, which we could also translate since. If this is a chair, if this chair is free, I'm going to sit on it. But you know the chair's free, so you will sit on it. Since this chair's free, I will sit on it since it's definite the if is not conditional it's not an iffy if it's a definite if if God loves me then I will be with him forever it's not an iffy if which if do you think Paul uses here he uses the second one since you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to promise it is not an iffy if It is not something that you can lose once you belong to Christ. Since you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You have a birthright. You have a share in this promise. You can be with him forever and enjoy the joy of knowing God in life and in eternity since you are in Christ. So come to Christ. Put your faith and trust in him. And share in this inheritance. Have a birthright, Christ's own birthright, to be part of this family, part of God's family, part of God's kingdom now and on into eternity.